Hey church, this weekend is an exciting time. We're gathering in person for the first time since March. And it's an honor to be sharing both online and in our live service on Sunday morning. Uh, When asked to preach this weekend, you know, I was excited about the opportunity, but I was also nervous. And uh, I wasn't sure where we'd be at in our journey through the book of Matthew in our summer sermon series. But I thought to myself, I hope this is a super uplifting, you know, good news section of scripture. So I jump on my computer, I open the document, uh, the sermon series document with the breakdown of our text, right? And I look up my week and this is what I was greeted with. This is what the NIV said. Woe to the unrepentant towns. All right, all right, you know, that, that's good, I can deal with that. Then, then I open the New Living Translation, just curious of what, what their title is for the section. It says, Judgment for the Unbelievers. So, um... I picked up my phone, and I began to text, Dr. Henry Short. Um, There appears to be a bit of an issue here. I seem to have gotten your text, and and I think you have mine. So I'm pretty sure this passage is meant for you. You know, this has senior pastor material written all over it, and and I'll take the unforced rhythms of grace next week. Uh, Sincerely, Travis. Smiley face. Second smiley face. And a third smiley face for good measure. Send. No, church, I did not text Pastor Henry, but I wanted to. Um, For a brief moment, I really did want to. And then I remembered the beauty of how Jesus lived and taught. You know, he calibrated invitation and challenge. And the text we're about to unpack this morning or today um, is extremely high challenge. And it's immediately followed by high invitation to be close to him. And you're going to hear more about that next week. Both are equally important to us. So before we jump into the text, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever read the story of Jesus and you came to places in the narrative where he's just ripping the Pharisees and he's ripping the the spiritually elite? And you're like, you tell them, Jesus, you let those pride-filled law followers have it. I can't believe how blind these people are. They missed it. They didn't get it. How self-righteous do you have to be to not see God's son, the awaited Messiah, when he's standing right in front of you? And it's not like it was a one-off encounter. He lived in your cities for a few years. And he was demonstrating the kingdom of God right in front of you. You know, the blind regained their sight. The lame walk. Lepers were instantly cleansed. A deaf person regained their, their hearing. The demonic were set free and thousands were fed with a boy's lunch. And even the dead were raised, and you still didn't believe? How focused were you on the rules that when God's son came and he demonstrated all these life-giving, restorative acts of the kingdom of God, you were upset because he did it on the Sabbath, or he made a claim you didn't agree with, or he colored outside of the lines, and, and you couldn't let that happen, right? In your opinion, he wasn't doing the right thing, or he wasn't doing it the right way. And you just dismissed and you rejected the entire message. So maybe you haven't had a rant quite like that when reading these, these texts, but uh, interestingly enough, I have. You just, you just heard one of them. Um, or maybe, you know, you're like me, church, and when you're reading the narrative, you've thought about how you would have been in the story had you lived uh, when Jesus walked this earth. I'd often place myself in the narrative as Peter. Yeah, I'd totally be the one whipping out a sword and lopping off an ear for Jesus. Yeah, I'd be the one that would step out of the boat and walk on the water. Or maybe it's Matthew. Yeah, 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 I'd be Matthew. I'd be the guy who walks away from a lucrative job working for the oppressor, making lots of money, 
And based on one encounter and one simple invitation to follow, I'd walk away and follow. I, I think that would be me. Or maybe I'd be Andrew. You know, the guy who recognized Jesus as the Messiah, like at the first encounter he ever had, he recognized it right away and began to tell people. He was that early adapter. He saw it and he stepped into it. Maybe I'd be him. Definitely wouldn't be Judas. No, never the betrayer. So two-faced. Or maybe I place my story or myself in the story as John. You know, the one Jesus loved. He's so chill. He's motivated by love. He understood the heart of Jesus. You see, church, in most, if not all stories, we see heroes and we see villains or antagonists. And we most often find ourselves rooting for the hero. And if we were to place ourselves in the story, we'd be the hero or part of his or her crew. We rarely place ourselves as the villain or the one who's in the wrong. You see, in the Jesus narrative, for so much of my life, I never placed myself in the story as the Pharisee or the one who wouldn't repent. And as I've matured and I've become a little more self-aware, you know what? I begin to realize there's many characteristics of the Pharisee and the unrepentant within me. You know, looking back over my life, there were seasons where I was so focused on being right that I didn't necessarily care if I offended, if I disrespected, or if I alienated others when it came to discussing matters of faith and belief. I had to be right. I had to win. Now, looking in the mirror today, I do see areas of unbelief. I see someone who looks a little more like the Pharisee and the unrepentant person than I would want to admit. You know, I see a rules follower within me sometimes that gets so bent out of shape if I think a rule is broken. There have been many times in traffic where my wife, you know, she said to ask me, relax, Trav, chill out, because I'm freaking out because the three cars in front of me just changed lanes and cut me off without a signal light. They broke the rules. And let me tell you about my grocery shopping experience these days. I've put at least an extra thousand steps on each visit just because I have to follow the arrows. And then I find myself getting super anxious as, as the cart going the wrong way approaches. So I'm smiling with my eyes uh, because they can't see my teeth under my mask. And, but my inside voice is screaming, how dare they not see the boldly painted lines? Church, here's the deal. Me being a rules follower isn't necessarily a bad thing. But when I dig down deeper and I check my motivation to follow the rules, sometimes this is what I find. Sometimes it comes back as an issue of control. I want to be in control. And when others step outside of that, I find myself wrestling internally. And over and over again in my life, I've needed to repent because one of the eternal truths of who God is, is this. God is great. And in his sovereignty, he's in control. So that means I don't have to be in control. I don't want you to hear this. I'm not saying that we throw away the rules and we be irresponsible. That's not what I'm saying. I'm speaking of, of the ditch we can fall into if we lose sight of what they're meant for and our motivation for following them is misguided. I'm speaking to the heart condition of those Jesus was calling out in our passage today. I'm speaking to a heart condition I wrestle with. And maybe it's one you wrestle with too. You see, in this passage, Jesus is bringing... Um, immense challenge to a group of people that would have included many of the spiritual elite that I just had a rant about. 
You see, the cities um, that Jesus comes at hard, they're Jewish cities. See, the people know the history of God. They know the story of God's chosen people. They know the story God has been writing to restore all people to himself. And now, many of them didn't engage or practice that faith, but many did. And so Jesus shows up, he's announcing the kingdom of God. He launches his earthly ministry in their region. And many demonstrations of the kingdom of God happen within their midst and says that their hearts did not change. See, Jesus didn't fit within the rules many of them had been following so diligently. He operated outside of them. You know, he wasn't the Messiah they had pictured. He didn't show up and kick out the Roman oppressors or invaders, and he didn't restore their earthly kingdom like they had hoped for. Instead, he came focusing on inside-out living and a kingdom that dwells within the heart of man. Just think about it for a second. Last week, we just read about John the Baptist and his doubts. And earlier in the story, if you recall, John was present at the baptism of Jesus. He baptized them and he witnessed as heaven opened up and this voice spoke these amazing words. This is my son. I love him and with him I'm well pleased. John witnessed that. But now, a couple years later, he finds himself in prison and he finds himself questioning if Jesus is indeed the Messiah. No doubt he's thinking back to all he learned as a good Jewish boy and he's measuring it against Jesus. Doubt slips in. And how does Jesus reply when John's disciples come and and they ask Jesus about this or tell him about it? What did Jesus say? He's like, hey guys, go tell John what you've seen. Remind him of all these beautiful restorative works of the kingdom of God. Tell him about the miracles you witnessed. It'll encourage him. He'll be okay. See, Jesus knew John had a repentant heart, a heart that was soft to God. And all he needed to do was just hear the testimony of what Jesus was doing, and that was enough. And here's the reality, church. John didn't even witness many of them. Yet he still believed. And so keeping this in mind, then Jesus turns to his audience, many who witnessed his mighty deeds. And this is how the message captures it. This is what he says. He's like, are you listening? Are you really listening to me? How can I account for this generation? You people have been like spoiled children whining to your parents. We wanted to skip rope, but you were always too tired. We wanted to talk, but you were always too busy. John came fasting, and you called him crazy. I came feasting, and you called me a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of the riffraff. He's like, opinion polls don't count for much, do they? The proof of the pudding's in the eating. And then he lets fly, and this is where our passage starts today. He lets fly on the cities where he worked the hardest, but those people responded the least shrugging their shoulders and going their own way. This is how the New Living Translation captures Matthew 11, verses 21 to 24. So Jesus says, What sorrow awaits you, Chorazin and Bethsaida? For if the miracles I did in you had been done in wicked Tyre and Sidon, their people would have repented of their sins long ago. They would have closed themselves in burlap and throwing ashes over their heads to show their remorse. I tell you, Tyre and Sidon will be better off on Judgment Day than you will. Ouch. And then he looks and he says, And you people of Capernaum, will you be honored in heaven? No. You will go down to the place of the dead. For if the miracles I did in you had been done in wicked Sodom, it would still be here today. Wow. I tell you, even Sodom would be better off on Judgment Day than you. Wow. (laughs) That's harsh, church. Jesus, 
is so passionate here because he knows the consequence of an unrepentant life. He doesn't want people to live in eternal separation from God. That's not his heart. His entire message was one of restoration. Yeah, he lived a life rooted in love, but there were times when he had to call out on belief. And we see it here today. See, the Bible tells us Jesus' ministry was first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. And so you can really see his frustration here as he calls out the unbelief within these Jewish cities, cities that were at the center of his earthly ministry. And he's saying, guys, gals, come on, you should know better. Have you forgotten who God is? Do you not see God at work right in front of you? God has been with your ancestors for generations and now his son is at work demonstrating the power of his kingdom right amongst you. And you're so hardened in your hearts and you're so focused on the law or you're blinded by your own pride and sin that you've missed that I've come to fulfill this law. I've come to restore you to God. You're so focused at being right in your own eyes that you've chosen not to believe in me and my message. And then to hammer it home, his point even more, he compares them, right, to the Gentile cities of old who didn't even know God's story, didn't experience covenantal relationship with God. And he says, they would have believed. Yeah, he's like, without the history, without the understanding of God's laws and his love, they would have believed the message. Now, church, if the story ended here, it wouldn't seem like a good news story now, would it? And as we all know, the story does not end here. In the very next breath, Jesus again invites his listeners to come to him, promising rest, promising a life of unforced rhythms of grace. It's amazing, hey? That's good news. So I think Jesus is so forceful in calling out unrepentant lives because it's the antithesis of what the kingdom of heaven is all about. Do you remember what his initial words were when he launched his earthly ministry? When he connected heaven to earth with his arrival, when he began to establish the authority of heaven on earth? This is what he said. Mark chapter 1, verse 15 captures it. Jesus said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Church, repentance is at the core of the life of a follower of Jesus. Changing the way we think, having the mind of Christ, believing in Jesus and living in his ways is at the core of the Christian life. It's at the core of the kingdom of God. Friends, the call to repent is more than the start of the Christian walk. It's the whole of our Christian lives. So now when I read a passage like the one we just read today, I don't think this doesn't apply to me. Because discipleship, the journey we're invited into, is moving from unbelief to belief in all areas of our lives. And in order to do that, it's committing to a life of repentance. This means we're going to spend the rest of our lives embracing repentance if we are to become fully devoted followers of Jesus. See, it's not about striving to do more. It's not about being the best follower or enforcer of the rules. It's not about working harder. It's not about doing my own thing and asking God to bless it. It's about radical repentance. It's about full surrender to Jesus. It's about asking God to show you where he's already at work and then joining him on his mission to restore all people to himself 
through the restoring or redemptive power and work of Jesus. It's about Christ in me, the hope of glory. See, these woes are an important part of the narrative. Jesus sees a bigger story than what we see. And his heart is that we are all restored to God. And there's urgency in his words here. He's calling out hardened hearts, hearts that have become skeptical and cynical, pride-filled hearts, hearts that rejected his message, hearts that saw the miraculous and still chose unbelief. Church, the hard passages are as important as the feel-good stories we read about in the Bible. So this is a moment right now where I want to invite us to take a look at our hearts and ask ourselves some questions. Please ponder these with me. Are there areas of unbelief within me that I need to bring to Jesus? Has my heart hardened to the message of Jesus? Have have I become complacent in my walk with him? Am I motivated by the good news message of the gospel? Do I really believe the entirety of its message? Have I put my trust in other things or people not named Jesus? Have I been striving on my own strength and not going to Jesus? Or am I more about being right than living repentant? Have I become so skeptical that I don't believe God is a miracle-working God? Am I like the people of the cities Jesus just called out? Church, let's ask Jesus by his spirit to reveal areas of unbelief within us so we can step into repentance, receive his grace today, embrace his love, invite his forgiveness, rest in his peace and soak in his joy. Martin Luther Luther opened the Reformation by nailing the 95 Thesis on the door of the Wittenberg Cathedral. Do you know what the very first verse of his thesis was? It was this. Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. On the surface, that might look a little bleak, You know, Luther seems to be saying that Christians will never be making much progress, but that wasn't his point at all. He was saying that repentance is the way we make progress in our Christian life. It's the way Jesus takes up more and more of our lives and we become more and more like him. That's what he was saying. Tireless, all of life repentance is the best marker that we are growing deeply and rapidly into the character of Jesus. And I believe this is why Jesus was so forceful in our passions today. He knew unrepentance led people away from God. And he knew repentance drew them near. Church, it's important for us to consider how the gospel affects and transforms our act of repentance. You see, in religion, the purpose of repentance is basically to keep God happy. So he will continue to bless you and answer your prayers. And this means that religious repentance is selfish, it's self-righteous, and it's bitter all the way to the bottom. But in the gospel, 
The purpose of repentance is to repeatedly tap into the joy of our union with Jesus in order to weaken our need to do anything contrary to God's heart. And this is the repentance Jesus is talking about in his whole message of the gospel. Tim Keller does a great job unpacking this. This is what he says. He says, in religion, our only hope is to live a good enough life for God to bless us. Therefore, every instance of sin and repentance is traumatic, unnatural, and horribly threatening. He says, only under great duress does a religious person admit that they have sinned because their only hope is in their moral goodness. But in the gospel, the knowledge of our acceptance in Christ makes it easier to admit we are flawed. Our hope is in Christ's righteousness, not our own. So it's not so traumatic to admit our weakness or our unbelief. See, in religion, we will repent less and less often. But the more often or the more accepted and loved we are in the gospel, the more and more we will turn to true repentance. And church, this is good news. Gospel repentance is choosing humility over pride, love over indifference, courage over anxiety, and faith over fear. Will you choose repentance today? Will you commit to a lifelong journey of repentance? I know I want to. And I invite you to join me on the journey, friends. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for who you are. I thank you for the completed work of the cross. I thank you that you defeated death and sin and the grave. I thank you that your message is one of repenting and believing, changing our minds to have your mind, and then acting out in faith and following in your footsteps and following you into mission. And today we're reminded that on repentance, leads to a path of destruction and despair and hopelessness, a path far from the heart of God, far from who he is. But a path of repentance draws us so near and close to our heavenly father who loves us unconditionally. So Lord, I thank you today for these hard passages that we read in the Bible. They're important because Jesus is giving us warning, but he's also giving us so much love and invitation to come close. So may we all take a step towards you today. So by your spirit, reveal areas that we just have been living in unbelief and we need to step into belief today. Do that by your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.